BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Mexico's democracy is not old. It was only in the 1990s that the pre's one-party hold on power finally gave way to real elections. While some parts of the country have seen substantial progress, cartel-linked violence has overtaken large swaths of the nation. In 2018, Andres Manuel López Obrador, widely known as AMLO, won the presidency. He took office as a lifelong politician, most recently a left-leaning former leader of Mexico City, but his governing style has civil society groups worried. He's trashing institutions and inviting the military into Mexican life in new ways, all while maintaining an unshakable popularity. Could Mexico's democracy be in trouble? That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This weekend, tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets of Mexico City and other places in support of the country's electoral commission. They opposed a plan put forth earlier this year by President López Obrador to overhaul the way Mexico conducts elections. Our first guest, Denise Dresser, sees the electoral changes as one piece of a larger strategy, as she put it in a recent foreign affairs essay, to restore, quote, something akin to the dominant party rule that characterized Mexican politics from 1929 to 2000, but with a militarized twist. Dresser is a political science professor at ITAM in Mexico City, as well as a columnist at Reforma. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Dresser. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be here. So we have listeners with all different levels of knowledge about the current Mexican political situation. So I want to step all the way back In 2018, before López Obrador was elected, what did the political landscape of Mexico look like? Well, I think we have to step back even further. Let's go back to the 1980s when Mexico was pretty much an authoritarian regime uh, with the facade of an electoral democracy in which the ruling party, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, uh, the Revolutionary Institutional Party, always won. 
And then came a democratic transition uh, led by opposition parties, civil society movements, ordinary citizens who marched and protested, protested for years against what they saw as the, the grip of a, an authoritarian party and an imperial president that pretty much did whatever they wanted and a mm -hmm. system in which the opposition could never win. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in that decade, in the 1990s, we built an electoral system that leveled the playing field, that gave people the chance to have an electoral card, um, that created a role, an electoral roll call that was actually verifiable, that created the conditions for, for in, under which opposition parties could not only compete, but actually win. And that occurred in 2000 when Vicente Fox from the Conservative National Action Party won the presidency. And since then, there have been competitive elections in Mexico. There have been presidents from the National Action Party and there have been presidents from the from former Revolutionary Institutional Party. But 2018 was the first time that the Mexican left won under Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. And this was considered a watershed and also a sign that the electoral system actually worked, that someone who had uh, been, uh, who had participated in elections several on several occasions prior to 2018, but had lost, now was actually given the rules and given the level playing field, uh, was uh, um, was propelled into the presidency with a huge amount of support. Mm -hmm. And over the past four years, uh, the paradox is that someone who portrayed himself as a progressive leftist has metamorphosized into something much more similar to a member of the former ruling party, someone who wants to maintain his grip on power, someone who wants to dismantle incipient institutions, someone who wants his party, Morena, to continue to be in office uh, beyond his presidency and is changing the rules of the game midstream. So what Mexico has been witnessing, and I'd say regrettably, sadly, is a phenomenon that we've witnessed throughout the world uh, called democratic erosion, democratic backsliding, wherein elected leaders who, um, who reached office through the rules of democracy then uh, change those rules and manipulate, manipulate or dismember institutions in order to assure that they or their party stays in power. And I think this is the situation that we're in, and that's why so many people went out to march, uh, including myself yesterday, all over the country, not only Mexico City, in many states and many state capitals. And they were defending a, a citizen conquest, something that we thought uh, was uh, an unequivocal uh, triumph of the transition to democracy and that would never be altered. And that was uh, the bare minimum rules for electoral competition, which this president is now seeking to rewrite in his favor. Something I've been trying to understand, Dr. Dresser, is I understand that there are these changes coming or, or at least proposed changes uh, to this electoral commission. But Lopez Obrador has incredible popularity still in the country. I mean, came in even even more popular, uh, as you say, back in 2018. But even after all the changes that he's made, 
basically every poll that I have been able to find says like he's more popular than we've seen an American president be popular for a very, very long time. Uh, two questions out of that. How is he maintaining that level of support, given the, the sort of things that you're talking about? And two, if he has that level of support, why muck about with the electoral system itself when it looks like Morena would win in a future presidential election anyway? Well, because popularity isn't the same as good governance. Popularity is not the same as actually carrying out measures that would lead the country to grow, to prosper, to redistribute wealth in a more equal fashion, to take on entrenched privileges. Lopez Obrador is very popular because he, 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 has, he, he carries out a very performative presidency. He has what is called a daily... Uh, morning press conference in which he lambastes his critics and delivers a narrative of what his government is about. Uh, he He's very um, folksy. He's very approachable. He travels throughout the country eating what uh, many Mexicans eat, stopping in, in small places to greet and meet and kiss babies. And he's on the permanent campaign trail. And he's beloved because of that. But if you look at the polls beyond the level of personal popularity, there is a massive disjuncture. He is a popular president at the helm of a government that is widely unpopular. If you look at how people measure or value or uh, categorize his government in terms of what it's, it's done regarding insecurity, or corruption, or uh, management of the economy, uh, opinions are very critical. Uh, his popularity is at a 10, let's say, and uh, evaluations of his government are failing. They're below mm. five, they're at a four, they're at a three. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this, is, this raises concerns for him because Mexico does not allow for re-election. He will have to leave in two years. And uh, I think he's, he's worried that his personal popularity will not translate into whoever he selects to be his successor. And this in itself is a regressive change for Mexico. In the past, in the era of PRI rule for over 70 years, the outgoing president handpicked his successor. And then after the democratic transition, that changed. Parties had primaries, um, and we, we, we appeared to be slouching towards a more normal democracy. But now he wants to go back to the traditional formula of picking someone who will succeed him, either the mayor of Mexico City or the current um, head of, of uh, the Ministry of International Affairs. Uh, and that hand-picked successor could end up being someone with very little charisma, with very little history of being a luchador social, you know, someone who mm -hmm. fought for good causes in the past. And therein, uh, the election could be contested. And he wants to cement his legacy. He wants many of the changes that he's instituted, such as uh, Mexico going back to oil-based energy, um, Mexico going back to a much more centralized political system, Mexico rebuilding um, the institutional um, rules that allowed for an imperial omnipresent 
president to basically dictate the rules of the game. He wants that to be perpetuated in the future. He wants to lock in what he calls the country's fourth transformation. The first, he says, was the War of Independence. The second were the liberal reforms of Benito Juarez in the 19th century. The third was the Mexican Revolution. And the fourth is what he calls his government. And he views himself, himself in these very grandiose political terms, uh, kind of the Mexican equivalent of let's make Mexico great again. Mm -hmm. And he fears that a contested election might put that into play, that given the disaffection with the consequences of his policies and the impact of his policies, and I outline many of those consequences in my piece in Foreign Affairs, how paradoxically uh, a president who, who came into office promising to combat corruption and to uh, attend to the needs of the poor, corruption is on the rise. Uh, the poor have grown uh, in, in terms of the numbers that fill their ranks. Mexico is becoming um, a much more polarized, much more unequal place. And instead of having a progressive leftist, what we've seen is uh, Lopez Obrador turning into more of uh, an authoritarian populist and not even of the left. Many of the moves that he has pushed forward and backed are imminently conservative, like cutting the size of the government, doing away with much of the civil service, and mostly, and I'd say most importantly, um, is the militarization of Mexico. Um, he decided early on, after having campaigned to take the military off the streets. Back to the barracks. The yeah. Back to the barracks, yes. And he, he, his campaign slogan was, abrazos, uh, no balazos, hugs, not bullets. Because back in 2007, the then conservative president, Felipe Calderón, in, the, in, in face of, 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 of uh, his questioned legitimacy after a very contested election, uh, decided that a way of bolstering his image and his power and dealing with drug trafficking and other challenges to public security was to resort to the military instead of the police. So he took the military out into the streets and his successor, Peña Nieto, did the same. And this created um, great animosity in the Mexican public because there is a concern, and I think a legitimate concern, of why is Mexico using the military when Mexicans yeah. in the past had never done so? We're going to talk about that right after the break. We're talking about the state of Mexican democracy with Denise Dresser, professor at ITAM. She is, her most recent article in Foreign Affairs is Mexico's Dying Democracy. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the state of Mexican democracy and the presidency of Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO to many. We're joined by Denise Dresser. She's a professor of political science at ITAM in Mexico City, and she's got an article in Foreign Affairs titled uh, Mexico's Dying Democracy. Dresser is also a very well-known uh, commentator in Mexico and a columnist for uh, Reforma. We want to add uh, another guest to our conversation, uh, Maria Marvan uh, Laborde. She's also a professor of political science, but at UNAM, another university in Mexico City, currently a fellow with the U.S.-Mexico Institute at UC San Diego. And she was an electoral commissioner for the precursor to the current electoral commission, the Instituto Federal Electoral, from 2011 to 2014. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really glad uh, to be here with you. Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about the actual nature of the overhaul that AMLO is proposing for this electoral uh, commission and what people in the streets yesterday were, were opposing? What parts of that plan are they opposed to? Uh, thank you very much. I, I think it's a very important question. I think we have to to go back of whatever uh, was saying uh, Dr. Dresser uh, about the building of democratic institutions over the last uh, 30 years. Uh, In Mexico, the uh, elections, the organization of elections, and most important, the the count of votes was in hand of, of the government directly controlled by the Partido Revolucionario Institucional. Uh, the scandal of the uh, ele- elections in 1988 uh, about a, f- a fraud was uh, so big mm-hmm. that uh, we started building a new institution that was called Instituto Federal Electoral, mm-hmm. which uh, has a, a figure that is very important in our constitutional uh, in in our constitution that is a constitutional autonomy that means that the new uh, electoral institution that is a that has to organize the elections uh, is not dependent of the executive or the legislative or nor the judicial Mm-hmm. So it has a, a economic autonomy, budget autonomy, and most important, the way that uh, the the way that the um, uh, Congress elect the main body of of the electoral system uh, assure that uh, every all the parties agree. At least, basically, you need a a qualified majority in order to elect each one of the of the um, consejeros electorales. So uh, there is a basic agreement 
on uh, all the political parties about who is going to organize uh, the elections. And this, the way the system is organized uh, make sure that the people that it's actually at the at the at the precinct of voting are uh, citizens that uh, has not necessarily a preference for one party or one candidate or mm -hmm. the other, but uh, are your neighbor, mm -hmm. uh, which are uh, select randomly. The uh, the reform that is proposed for um, from the president uh, undercut the autonomy of the Instituto Nacional Electoral in three different ways, uh, which are uh, quite important. First of all, he changed drastically, or, or he tries to change drastically, the form of uh, selecting the, the, the head of the institute. And instead of being an agreement between parties, he proposed uh, an, a popular election, which mm. is really very strange uh, for an uh, um, electoral authority. Second, he destroys the, the civil servant uh, process that uh, assured uh, to the people that works at the Instituto Nacional Electoral that they have a career uh, with mm. technical preparation and with capacities to organize the election, which has become something very, very sophisticated in, in Mexico. And the third one is to uh, uh, cut the, the budget in a significant way. So uh, by 30 years, we have been growing in uh, two things that are very important. Uh, confidence on, on the electoral authority and most important, pluralism. Mm -hmm. uh, we came, as uh, said uh, already, uh, Denise Dresser, we came from a hegemonic party with authoritarian uh, regime in which there was just one party. The president was able to pick handle his successor, and I said his because we have never had a, a female president. And uh, whomever he chooses was uh, becoming a uh, <laughs> a, a president. So we have uncertainty in the rules because that can change over the course of the election, but certainty in who was going to be the winner, exactly the opposite what we uh, that, that a democratic system needed. In a democratic system, you have to be certain of the rules, believe on the rules, and you cannot know the winner until all the votes votes are uh, counted. So uh, what we saw yesterday, and, and I think it's very, very impressive, is that uh, people from this pluralist society, from left and right, from parties, from civil society, uh, from 
from very different backgrounds. Even I can say people that is opponent in terms of politics uh, went out to the street to really flood the, the streets, not just in Mexico City, as the news dresser said. We have a different parades. I don't know if the exact, exact word is parade, but different uh, pr protests in at least 50 different cities. And in Mexico, we have 32 states. So it means we have more than one city per state. Yeah. Sorry, more than one uh, parade per state, which really uh, shows two things. I, I, how, I how wide the support is, you think, for the opposition? How wide the support is and how wide the, uh, uh, is the people angry about the uh, destruction of institutionals, uh, of democratic institutions. That's very uh, funny or very important to, to say. I, I think the word is not funny. It's not common that people in one country, not just Mexico, went to the streets to defend democratic institutions. It's really, a, I, I remember once in France, there was a big parade uh, saying to one of the presidents, I don't know, I don't remember exactly who was, I think it was Mitterrand, saying, uh, don't mess with our rights. I mean, now uh, Mexican people say, said, don't mess with our democratic mm -hmm. institutions. Uh, no, we are, no, oh, sorry, sorry, Dr. Marmon, sorry, one sec. We're talking about the state of Mexico's democracy and the presidency of Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO. We're joined by Maria Marvan Laborde, professor of political science at the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, UNAM, as people know it, currently a fellow with the U.S.-Mexico Institute uh, at UC San Diego. We're also joined by Denise Dresser, a professor of political science at ITAM, also in Mexico City, and uh, columnist for Reforma, and has a, a new essay out called Mexico's Dying Democracy in Foreign Affairs. We'd like to hear uh, your thoughts. What are your thoughts on the state of Mexico's democracy? Like, are you from Mexico? Or do you have family there? And what are you hearing from them about AMLO's presidency? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. We're going to add uh, one more guest to our discussion. Natalie Kitroep is the Bureau Chief for Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean for The New York Times. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thanks for having me. So one of our listeners uh, had written in to ask, you know, that I understand that Mexico had been often ruled by elites. Is AMLO both a reaction and a better alternative to entrenched elite that is out of touch with average Mexicans from from the reporting that the Times is doing, like how how is AMLO being perceived along those lines? Well, um, Andres Manuel López Obrador remains um, remains very popular in this country, and and I think the the question gets at part of the reason um, he built himself when he was swept into office in 2018 as an alternative to a political establishment that was viewed in this country as um, 
deeply troubled um, as not having delivered um, on the promises that that they had made. And he cast himself as a champion of the people and as a break from that tradition, from the dinosaurs of Mexico's past. Um, and so for many, he was viewed as a much better alternative to what they had seen in the past. And, and still, for many, that remains true. Yeah. Denise Dresser, I, earlier you mentioned this move to bring the military into areas of, of Mexican life where it had not previously been. Um, can you talk about how you see that with respect to the, the democratic institutions uh, of the country? Well, Lopez Obrador's uh, efforts to assure that his legacy is cemented uh, are built on giving the military an expansive new role. Lopez Obrador doesn't trust institutions. He doesn't trust the apparatus of the state to be loyal to him. In order to affect uh, the sweeping changes that he has advocated for, he has done away with many of the traditional rules and procedures, some of which, yes, uh, were elitist, were uh, a sign of a country that had been ruled by a privileged few. It's, it's undeniable that Mexico needed to be shaken up. But uh, the way in which he has chosen to do so is troublesome from the perspective of democratic rule uh, because so much of it is based on the militarization of the country. Uh, instead of returning the army back to the barracks, he decided to co-rule with the military. He's given them uh, over 250 tasks that used to be in hands of civilians that are now being carried out by the Mexican military. That includes um, taking over police duties, so public security issues, the ports, the airports, uh, immigration uh, and building many of the massive public works that he uh, uh, argues will deliver prosperity and growth, particularly to southern Mexico. The Maya train, uh, airports, and uh, a refinery in Tabasco. But this also has meant that the military has gained an enormous amount of political and and uh, economic power that it never had. It is turning into a power in and of itself without civilian control. Uh, Lopez Obrador, at the beginning of his term, created what is called the National Guard that was meant to be uh, a, a militarized political force, but with uh, civilian components and overseen by civilians that would substitute the Mexican police. But then uh, recently he decided that the National Guard should become part of the defense ministry. And at that point, it, it means that all kinds of activities that were normally in the hands of the police will be now carried out by a military that has no civilian oversight. Uh, if you've been following Mexican news, you know that there was a, a massive breach of, uh, of cybersecurity at the Mexican Ministry of Defense called the Guacamaya Leaks. And a lot of information as to what happens within the Mexican military has become public, including the involvement of 
uh, the military and the disappearance of the 43 students in Ayotzinapa years ago. Well, in response to a public outcry, wanting to know exactly what had happened, as well as to decipher uh, what are the, are the implications of many of the things revealed in the leaks, including the way in which the military had had a plan to militarize the country prior to Lopez Obrador actually announcing it and how uh, the legislation that led to the military beca becoming part of the Ministry of Defense was actually written in the Ministry of Defense. The head of the Ministry of Defense was called to, to, uh, to come before Congress and explain himself, and he refused to do so. It's as if in the US, the head of the Northern Command refused to testify before the Senate. I mean, in any other country, this, this would have uh, meant that that person be dismissed, that there be a congressional investigation. Well, here we've normalized the militarization that AMLO ha has proposed. It's, uh, it's even supported by many because of the massive insecurity that seems to be growing. Um, in effect, the head of the Northern Command in the U.S. in, in, uh, in, te in testimony before the U.S. Senate said that two-thirds of Mexican uh, territory had now been infiltrated by criminal gangs or by drug traffickers. So Lopez Obrador has relied on the military, uh, as I said, in order to, to perpetuate his form of governance, to have a pillar of support for the way in which he governs, and also to have a force that is loyal to him and that is uh, beyond public scrutiny. Uh, many of the areas in which the military participates have been reclassified as national security, including an airport built by the military outside of Mexico City. Citizens no longer have access to the contracts or to many of the procedures, the groups involved in the construction, how the bids were made, um, information that should be made transparent to every citizen, uh, we no longer have access to it because it's, it's been recategorized as of national security, which places it beyond the domain of democratic scrutiny. And that's why I think Mexican democracy is in trouble, because things that uh, in any other democracy would be abnormal, which would, which would lead to a huge outcry, which would call for congressional investigation and so on. Here, uh, Lopez Obrador has said, these are necessary um, moves that I need to make in order to assure that the fourth transformation remains even when mm. I am out of power. Yeah. We're talking about the state of Mexico's democracy and the presidency of Andres Manuel López Obrador. We're joined by Denise Dresser, professor of political science at ITAM, Maria Marvan Laborde, a professor of political science at UNAM, and Natalie Kitroev, bureau chief for Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean with The New York Times. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the state of Mexico's democracy. I want to bring a caller in, uh, Miguel from Mountain View. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm a software engineer in the Bay Area, and I just wanted to comment on how those of us abroad are already being impacted by AMLO's government. Um, We have been increasingly sending more and more money uh, on a daily basis. Uh, When he started government, it was the tune of about $100 million a day. Now we're about 160 million dollars a day that those of us abroad are sending back, back home. Um, many of us have families that are now being directly impacted by um, organized crimes and narco violence in, in Mexico. Many of us are seeing all of the effects of the budget cuts that that the government has been doing over the past few years. So, when he his recent attacks on the Electoral Institute are just an extension of his pattern of. When he goes against something, he really goes against something and and doesn't stop. So uh, the other thing that I find fascinating in in him is that he made his career being an opposition leader for decades. And now he wants to monopolize what the right opposition is. So he is calling anybody who opposes him racist and classist. So he basically uh, does not allow anybody to be an opposition other than him. So. I find that I find that completely incredulous, and and many of us out here abroad are living day to day with the effects of what he's doing in Mexico. Yeah. Miguel, thank you uh, so much for for your perspective. I want to I want to take another caller right away, and then we're going to take both of these comments together. Uh, Gabriel in San Jose, welcome. Hi, good morning. Thank you, thank you. Well, I, I just want to say um, that I I don't live there. It's been 25 years. I've been living here, but my grandpa's and I still have my mother and my uh, two brothers and one sisters. We are from uh, Guerrero, mm-hmm. and what I can tell you is that uh, my grandpas are really happy right now. My brothers and my mother, because we are from a very small town in Guerrero, where before we we were not we were not getting any help. We were forgotten for years and years and now with this current president uh we are getting now uh new roads uh, electricity uh he's working really hard to get us internet uh and i believe that the majority uh of the people that are supporting this president is the poor because he has visited even our town, he went to visit it, and never before we had had a president who did that. And I think that's why, you know, uh, some people believe that democracy is in danger. But in fact, democracy means for the people. And I think he is 
helping the poor now. And uh, and another thing is that my my grandpas are very happy with the military now because poor people cannot afford security. A lot of the people that are against that, you know, go around with the private security everywhere. So we, the poor, we're not able to get uh, uh, security. So the military is helping a lot of these small towns who have been forgotten for years and years. And Manuel Lopez Obrador, he's, he's been looking down to us. So it's great. Gabriel, I great. Yeah. I, Gabriel, I really appreciate um, you calling in, giving us your perspective and perspective of your of your grandparents in Guerrero. Uh, Miguel in Mountain View, thank you um, as well. You know, I think this is a, a great place to go to you, Natalie Kitroev, uh, bureau chief for the New York Times. I mean, these kind of feel like we're we're seeing some of the divisions in Mexico, even you know, in our in our callers here with with families back home. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, Mexico, you know, we think of the U.S. as being extremely polarized, and it is. Um, but I arrived here in Mexico in April 2020 and was really surprised at the level of divisions that, you know, are stoked by the president himself. I mean, he um, has a daily morning news conference that he uses to kind of dominate the narrative. And um, yes, as the first caller pointed out, um, you know, cast anyone who questions his policies as, um, you know, against the people, against his project, kind of personally motivated to take down this government. Um, and he names names of, of journalists, um, you know, others, opposition leaders. And it's a really effective strategy because he, you know, manages to really be on the agenda and his words are then kind of repeated all day long on, on regular newscasts. So um, the kind of political narrative that has come about feeds into these divisions, but, but it's also right that, that these divisions existed before. Um, he's exploiting something um, that already existed. And, and for many, many people, and I can't stress how many, um, the, the, the feeling is, is 100% what the second caller said, mm-hmm. um, that this is a guy who is, you know, he's a retail politician. He went to every little town when he campaigns. I mean, he, you know, if you talk to reporters who covered his campaign, they could barely keep up with the guy. I mean, he was going to places that took nine hours to drive through mountains, and he goes to these towns that no one has visited before, you know, and he takes the things that people give them, and he hugs people, and he tells them that they're being heard, and and to be heard um, is extremely is extremely valuable, and so you really do see um, something, something that is akin to the United States in terms of polarization, but with a real sense for many in the poor that that they are represented by this person. Yeah. Dr. Dresser, you know, maybe you could just address Gabriel directly, right? I mean, he's seeing these things with his own eyes or through the eyes of his family in Guerrero, and he's saying, listen, no one cared about this town before. Um, I, the, the military's presence is, is appreciated. Um, why should someone like him or like his family stand up for things like the INE or, or so, you know, care about the kind of institutional problems that you're talking about? 
Well, I think the reason to do so is simply to look back at the past. I'm probably a lot older than Gabriel, and I remember a country uh, where the president was Carlos Salinas back in the 1980s, and he as well visited every single remote town. He also presented himself as a champion of the people. He developed a very popular um, clientelistic program that doled out benefits to the poor. And he left office uh, as the most popular president recorded in Mexican history. And then the economy collapsed because it was mismanaged, because uh, instead of uh, carrying out uh, economic policies that were rational, he spent money in order to support his party staying in office. I mean, we bore the brunt for decades of very powerful presidents who mismanaged the economy and led us from crisis to crisis to crisis. And yes, I understand what Gabriel is feeling because it's undoubtedly true that for many of the poor in this country, receiving a cash handout from the president, receiving money directly from the president, makes their lives better than they were before. But there's nothing that will assure that their lives will be better in five days, in five months, or in five years, because the economic model that Lopez Obrador has built these cash transfers are, is untenable. It is creating a huge hole in public finances and cannot be sustained without economic growth. And economic growth is paltry because Lopez Obrador has done a number of things that have frightened investors, that have led to disinvestment, that have led to just essentially very bad management. And um, yes, the military is now acting as a, um, a, a dissuader of crime simply by patrolling the streets of small towns. But that deterrent is insufficient to reduce the level of homicides, reduce the level of violence. People may feel at a certain level that their town will be made safer by ha having uh, military convoys go up and down the streets. But if you look at the numbers and you look at the numbers in Guerrero, militarization has not led to less crime, to less violence, to more peace. On the contrary, the numbers are rising and scaringly so. So I believe that in many ways, this is a Potemkin presidency that has managed to convince people that what he's doing is in their benefit. When the benefit is accruing largely to himself, to his party, and to the permanence of his party in power, to the detriment of the poor. If you look at the numbers, and I'm not, this is not an opinion, it's a fact. So if we could debate on the basis of facts, uh, as we're trying, as you are trying to do once again in the United States, the number of poor people in Mexico has grown by 4 million over the past two years. So I don't see how someone who got to office as a champion of the poor can be continued to be viewed as such when his policies have proven to be very damaging to the most vulnerable in society. I voted for him. I believe that he was an alternative to the Mexico of privileges, the Mexico of elites, the Mexico of a very um, 
you know, a, 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 an electoral democracy that benefited parties, but not the poorest in society. Uh, the downside of this is that now you have a president who has gone back or backtracked on many of his promises. And the effects of his policies have been harmful even to what was the basic minimum that we'd managed to build, which was the rotation of parties in power. And we have and a caller be- on the line, Dr. Dresser. I just want to squeeze in Raul in, in Foster City who wants to kind of return us exactly to this topic. Raul? Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yes, sure. Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Yeah, perfect. Great. So, uh, thank you for the opportunity. And, and uh, so, I, I worked at the uh, local institute at the ENAF, uh, electoral institute, the DAF before they changed the, the name to Mexico City Institute, I guess now. I've been in the state for 20 years. And I must say, it's a stream how Andres Manuel wrote on the wave of claiming there has been always fraud and fraud and fraud. But actually, it was the electoral institutions that supported his win. And, and actually allowed him to live on, on uh, federal money, if you want, for so many years. And now he's just detracting what he had promised all the time. And, and going back, he always said that the military would be in their barracks and they would not be on the streets because he didn't want to use them. He claimed that there was an abuse of power. And there are so many other theories running around right now. But because military might have been in cahoots with the drug lords and they needed a source of income, and Andres Manuel wanted to make it some kind of legal, he started giving them more and more power. That's why they manage so many other uh, things, like the airport that was mentioned before, which nobody wants to use. It's, it's a mockery among those who actually have to use the airport at, in Mexico City. And uh, to that point also, like the previous two callers, it's very sad because we, we are very divi- divided. I mean, I was fortunate, and the one thing that my parents left me is education. And I went to the ATAM, and, uh, and then I was able to pursue a PhD at Berkeley. But that's it. I, I will not fall back on any wealth from my family. And I do see how other families are now extending the hand. And yeah, if you give me money for doing nothing, absolutely. But as uh, Denise is saying, that's not sustainable because you need to generate wealth to distribute wealth. And, and the wealth, to me, that has been lost in Mexico for so many generations now is education. People are more and more egregiously ignorant, and they don't realize how they're killing themselves by electing these uh, uh, New, new leaders that actually also do not have any idea of what they're supposed to do. And furthermore, they don't even want to listen to their uh, advisors and people around them that might have better education than them. I mean, not, the president shouldn't be the one person solving every problem. That's why there should be experts and other secretaries. And, and then this Manuel is completely oblivious to that. He's blind. He's, he, I mean, if, if power corrupts, power has absolutely corrupted him because he has absolute power. And the last comment there, when he had visited the towns, there are videos about him actually asking for permission to go and greet the mother of the chapel, which was another egregious event. I mean, yeah, he has visited every little town, but he still asked for permission from the mother of the chapel to approach an SUV and greet the lady. And he claims he's just another lady. It's not true. I mean, so it's, it's, it's sad. And uh, when your own family, like my father just last week told me, please not come back, don't bring your family because. Uh, uh, crime is off the roof and women are being killed left and right and it's, it's not safe. I don't want you to be nearby. I fear for you, your wife, or your kids. It's, it's a very sad image because it's not the country I left 20 years ago and I would love to go back at some point, but it's, yeah. it's not feasible. Raul, thank you. Uh, thank you for your perspective. I'm going to go really quickly. I just want to, I, I really appreciate 
callers are really connecting with what our guests are saying. I want to get to Liliana in Los Altos. Liliana? Hi, good morning. Go ahead. Um, I was just calling to say that I just traveled to Mexico. I have been living here for 20 years now. And I am so impressed on how things are working. I visit the new airport that Denise was mentioning, and it is functional. Um, finally, I could see that the taxes were put to use. In previous governments, they talk about stimulating the economy. However, the, the projects were always being built with nothing to be proved of. And I finally see it. My family lives there, and I can also see that they are thriving. So I agree, we need to protect the electoral institutions. However, um, we need to recognize what AMLO has done. Liliana, thank you for your perspective as well. Uh, Dr. Marvan, do you want to, just really briefly as we get to the end of the show here, do you want to discuss, you know, sort of the positive things that people think AMLO has done? Do you do you agree with what callers say they're saying in in the country. Well, I, I think it's very clear that uh, AMLO is a charismatic figure uh, that has increased very successfully the polarization of the country. I don't know if this is an achievement that we have to applaud or we have to really uh, be sad about it. Uh, the polarization is both economic and, bo uh, and ideological. Uh, as Denise Dresser said, he has given many people directly to the people, many money di directly to the people. That means he has been able to give a lot of people a fish, but uh, doing nothing or a, or a little, just very little, uh, to them to learn, to teach them how to fish. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, is growing clientelism, which is one of the worst forms of the electoral, of the corruption of the electoral system. We have been talking about the state of Mexico's democracy and the presidency of Andres Manuel López Obrador, also known as AMLO. We've been joined by a really stellar, just incredibly knowledgeable panel. Maria Marvan Laborde is a professor of political science at UNAM in Mexico City. Natalie Kitroev is the bureau chief for Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean for the New York Times. And Denise Dresser is a professor of political science at ETAM, also a columnist for Reforma, and her article on foreign affairs, Mexico's Dying Democracy, inspired the show. Thanks to all three of you. Thank you so much. And I also just want to thank our callers as well for bringing an incredible variety of perspectives on the experience uh, that you and your families are having of this government in Mexico. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.